Good morning. All right, we're going to have scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage is a little less peppy than our worship music was this morning, so let's uh, try and keep in mind that uh, reading the Word of God is just as much of worship, and the God in these passages um, is just as much the good God worthy of rejoicing. Yes? Great. Wonderful. All right, the passage is going to be Ezekiel chapter 4. I'm going to insert um, some modern conversions for the measurements found in the chapter. All right. Ezekiel 4. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out eight ounces of food and eat it each day and set times. Also measure two-thirds of a quart of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. And I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will, t I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I am about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Thanks, Becca. Wee, fun. Week three of only 28 weeks of judgment. Uh, I, um, some of you know that I've said a couple, in the last couple weeks that um, very few pastors preach through the book of Ezekiel. Usually it's a couple highlight passages, and then they jump out. And I can't imagine why. Um, I, there, I, there's a huge temptation for me to do this, to like pick the six nice, like the six ones I wanted to preach the most. Um, but I have a commitment to expositional preaching, preaching through the books of the Bible to try to, as much as possible, let God set the agenda for us, and so that's what we're going to try to do. 
One of the things that we don't understand about ourselves sometimes is how much a unspoken, subconscious, pre-programmed sense of proportion about life governs how we perceive things, how we understand things, what confuses us, what bothers us, what makes us nervous, what sets us free from things. It, it, like, we're constantly reading the world by our sense of proportion. That's true naturally. It's true morally. It's true spiritually. For example, Gary LaFontaine, um, in his theory of fly fishing attraction, something you probably have all read about, um, said the first thing a fish comes up when they rise up to take an insect off the surface, the first thing they're looking for is the proportionality of the structure of the insect's body. It's the first thing. So if it's on the bottom, and there's a bug coming down the stream. It looks up from the, from the bottom, because it doesn't want to waste any energy, right? And he goes, that's the right proportions. And then he rises, and then there's some secondary characteristic he's looking for before he bites it, right? Proportion. It, it's like it's on the most visceral level, right? Trout use it to understand how to feed, right? It's innocent. It's like a very deep neurological way. It, it affects how we think about attraction, for example. Like the most beautiful women, so to speak, right, are supposed to be the ones with like these perfect like sub-proportions, right, which are probably stupid. Um, and as you get older, you realize that like sweet is hot. You know what I mean? But like just in terms of like visceral proportionary, you look at something and say, oh, that's an attractive thing, right? But it's not just, it's not just physical attraction or romance. It's also just things that please us to look at, like logos, right? They're supposed to have, like if they don't have a certain kind of proportion to them, it bothers us. And if they have perfect proportion, it pleases us in ways that we don't necessarily always consciously understand, right? <laughs> Sometimes things are out of proportion for fun or something like that, and we do it to like highlight something and make it interesting, right? Like in this case, there's clearly a very scary creature on the screen, right? This one. The chicken is by far, I mean, as a young boy who grew up on a farm, being attacked by roosters, the idea of a six-foot rooster is one of the scariest things I could possibly imagine, right? And so, so like, you know, it's, that gets my attention, that out of proportionness, right? Um, th this last year, my wife was like, I'd really like a fence around our yard, just so I don't have to worry about the dogs and neighbors can't see everything that we do. And, you're always setting things on fire. Can we just get a little privacy? I was like, sure. So I, I thought, well, well, we'll build, we'll get a fence. We'll get the cheapest cedar, you know, Tom Sawyer fence, whatever, right? And I was like, and I understood the dynamic, okay? The dynamic was not lost in me. I'm going to pay somebody money to put up a fence, right? They're going to put up a fence. I'm going to pay them money, right? That was right. Nothing got abused about that notion in me, right? But when the person came to my house, and during COVID, the cost of lumber had gone up like a thousand percent, they handled, they handed me a free estimate that it would only cost $23,000 to put a 300-foot fence on my property, right? And I thought, you know, I've got the dynamic right. I've got the proportion wrong, right? And, and see, like, you can understand the dynamic of something really well. But if you're off on the proportion, you're just as off. And if Scripture says that one of the effects of the fall or sin, the curse, is to disorder us in our desires, in our, right? then what is it most likely to disorder, right? Our sense of the dynamic or our sense of proportion, right? Disordering always missets the proportions of things, right? That's why in most cases when we think we're right and somebody else is wrong, it's not because either party misunderstands the dynamic. It's because I think what you did was worse than what I did in a morally proportionate way. Yeah, if like you had not done anything to me and I did what I did, then that would be bad. I should, I probably shouldn't have done that. Maybe, I probably, like, I'm not perfect, right? Right, but because you did what you did and proportionally it was an eight to a two, you're the one who's wrong and I'm right. Right? And a lot of the things that we do and things we get upset about, things we're angry about, things we won't forgive about, don't have to do with the dynamic problem we've missed, but it has to do with our perception of proportion. One of the most dangerous 
mistakes of proportion is when something is way out of proportion and it's not totally obvious at first. Right? One of the things I think, um, and, and you can go through a lot of different problems in our lives and you realize it's really not the dynamic. People think it's the dynamic. It's not the dynamic. It's the proportion that's off. So for example, as um, teenagers, like the, you have these adolescents kind of growing up and you're trying to parent them and um, they want more freedom and parents are like, I'm still your parent and I still have authority in your life, right? There becomes this increasing conflict that often arises, right? Why? It's not because if you talk to the 17-year-old kid, right, or the 16-year-old kid, you're like, listen, does your parents still have authority? Are they still your parent? Like most kids can be like, well, yeah. Yeah, of course they're my parent. And if you ask the parent, do you think that because your kid is maturing into an adult, like you have to pull back some and let them make some more free choices and have some more personal liberty to make decisions while they're still in your house so that you can help them? The parent will go, yeah. So then why all the problems? And the, and the answer is, it's the proportion. The parent wants to exert more authority than the child wants to allow, and the child wants to exert proportionately more freedom than the parent wants to let happen. And because of the difference of proportion, not dynamic, you have a big problem. And if you mistake the problem to be the dynamic, not the proportion, right? That, what does the parent say? The parent goes, I'm in charge here! Right? That misunderstands the issue is not the dynamic. It's not that the kid literally thinks you're not the parent, you're not in charge, right? It misunderstands that, like, what they're saying is, I feel like you're not giving me enough liberty to make choices. If you're not going to, would you tell me why, right? Which is why sometimes the right discussion with a kid is, okay, listen, I, don't, I just don't trust you enough. Like, the way you've behaved in 14, 15, and most of 16 so far is you don't act responsibly. You've done things that lead me to not trust your judgment. If you behave increasingly in ways in which I can clearly trust your judgment, then I can give you more liberty, and I really want to, because I know you need it to mature. I know you need it to have fun, right? And then you can talk about what kind of actions those would be. Um, I see this in, in racial division and justice, right? I've been in all these conversations about racial justice in which people seem to always assume the problem is the dynamic. We don't understand that there's racism. We don't understand that there's these things like hovering about. And what I find more and more is like, it's, it's really not a question of the dynamic. People accept the dynamic. Everybody knows that there are disparities. Everybody knows there's inequity. Everybody knows that there's, there's dislike. Everybody knows that there's problems. Everybody knows that there's hurt feelings. Everybody knows that. The question is, in, based on what we do, what's the most important thing to do, which has everything to do with what you think is the biggest problem, which has everything to do with what you think the proportions are, right? And that has to do not with the science or the data. It has to do with your values, right? Take policing and urban crime. I know this is going to hurt. This is going to get people angry. Hopefully, I'll make you listen, okay? So, like, there's, there's one side of this whole discussion that was like, look, we need better policing, right? And we, if, we, if we can't, we're just going to defund them, right? Okay, listen, those people are right from a certain set of values and understandings of proportion. What? Why? We expect more from police than we expect from normal citizens. It's the job of police to serve and what? Protect, right? And so if you have the perception that police aren't protecting in situations where they could or using more force in situations that they shouldn't, the idea that like that should be fixed because it's a fundamental and objective moral problem, right? That gets the priority, right? It's in the government. It's something we have control over. There's administration. Like you can do something, right? Other people are like, okay, if a young African-American man in an urban setting walks out of his house and is afraid he's going to get beat up or killed that day, who is profoundly statistically likely to be the person doing it? It's not a police officer. It's another citizen who lives in that area, probably a man, probably under 35, and probably just because of demographics and where people are living, somebody of his ethnicity, right? And it's, it's just a economic, statistical fact that that's a high percentage. And so if that's the proportion you're looking for, what's the macro issue? What's the majority of things happening? We should focus on that. Then you're going to think that's the higher 
thing that, that requires it. You'll be like, why don't you guys talk about urban violence, right? And like from a perspective, from a proportionate understanding, that's true. COVID's the same thing, right? Should we like do a total lockdown with masks to make sure nobody dies? Or shouldn't we? Well, it depends on not the science, but your values. That's why I can pull 17 or 20 different medical professionals in High Point Church and get 15 different answers back about what we should do. They're all reading the same CDC guidelines. They all went to the same biology classes. They all understand human anatomy. They all understand how pathogens work, but they have different ideas about what the church should do, right? And they offer them humbly, like, this is what I would do. And they're all different. Why are they all different? Because it doesn't have to do with the science. It has to do with your values, right? People who were afraid that three million people were going to die, when we really didn't know how many people were going to die, we're like, we've got to shut everything down because having three million people die is completely catastrophic, right? And that's correct proportionally from a certain set of values. And yet other people said, listen, there are going to be a ton of dispersed human costs here. Tons of them lost education, like suicides, like human depression, mental disorders, people not going in for medical screenings. Like, it's going to be a ton. We don't know what the value of that stuff is. That could way outweigh the number of people who actually die. For example, um, two studies on just the cost of lost education from closing schools, right? One of the ones done, uh, the ones I read this week, put it at an estimated 13.8 million human life years. That was the cost. Because, right, if you don't get as much education, Right? You, there's, there's a cost to GDP. There's a cost to, like, where you get in life and so on. And that costs you months and years on the end of your life. Right? And most of the people who died of COVID died in their 80s. So statistically, you're not losing a lot of human life years for each death. So the human life years lost for COVID is about 1. Is it 1.8 million? 1.8 million? The human years life lost because we closed all the schools is 13.8. If we would have kept all the schools open, the estimate is it would have been about 4.4 million life years lost. Right? Which is, now I didn't know this was going to be the case, but do you remember like 13 months ago, I was like the one, here's the hill we're going to die on. We're going to keep our school open. Remember that? I was like, look, we're going to court. We're going to go to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin if we have to. We're keeping our schools open. Because the cost of the loss of education, the cost of the, particularly the kids who are falling behind, who are inviting into our school system, like we got to provide an education for them. We can't accept, expect that like their mom's going to go out to work, they're home alone, they're, they're going to dutifully watch their screen even though their camera isn't even on. Come on. Right? And, and I didn't know it was going to turn out, but I, like, I think that was the right decision. Like I feel like I could spike the football on that one. And it was a difficult decision. The elders were split. Like, I ended up having to make the decision, like, myself, and I had to, like, argue for me, like, hey, I think we need to do this. The human cost is going to be big, and nobody wants to take it into account. Dispersed costs are always ignored for, for, for focused, concentrated costs, like human death, right? But you see, the issue was not the dynamic. The issue was the proportion. How do we look at this proportionately? And the answer is for the pandemic, and for the most part, we didn't. We didn't weigh proportions. We made a single choice on the way our values proportioned our compassion to a particular thing. The good news is, is that we've had one now, and we can actually research what happened, and hopefully the next time we can do a little better, you know. <clears throat> What's the next slide? So, how does this relate to our spiritual lives? Because I want you to see that, like, proportion in our lives, how it functions emotionally, spiritually, morally, is an incredibly big proportion. It's, it's, it's a huge part of your life. It's a huge part of your dynamic. It's a huge part of your character. It's a huge part of who you are. It's in some ways even more than like your conscious reasoning about what the world is like, what reality is like. And so therefore, 
a sense of proportion can make us spiritually sensible. If there's a way in which God can give us a sense of proportion about things related to him, then that has a chance of making us spiritually sensible, right? The Puritans used to use the word sensible for like rightly emotionable, rightly emotional, feeling rightly. That is, the way you felt corresponded with the truth. You were sensible of it. You didn't just believe it cognitively, but you felt along those lines and you were able to act and obey along those lines, right? And the problem is, is that what the Bible says from beginning to end is this is our, actually our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not denying that God exists. Most of the people who have rejected, rebelled against, been obstinate towards God throughout the history of the world have not been atheists. They have been professed theists. They believe, they say they believe in God. They even often say that they believe in his revelation. Oftentimes they say they believe in his Christ. And yet they're angry at him. They think he doesn't talk to them. They don't know why his rules are so strict. They feel like God is, gives incredibly disproportionate punishments and threats relative to our actions. We don't think we've really done anything wrong. We think God has done a lot of things wrong. It reminds me of Job when God shows up finally in the whirlwind and he says, Job, you listen. I'm going to speak to you, and I want you to stand up and answer me like a man. Will you condemn me to justify yourself? And that had to do with God's righteousness in proportion to Job's pain in that particular situation. In, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 4, God is, God is going through these pronouncements of justice, ju- judgment, these actions of judgment, and he's, he's having Ezekiel do some like really strange, bizarre things, right? And this is one of the strangest and most bizarre things, which is for him to lay on his side for 390 days, <laughs> eating some weird food, cooking it over— cow dung, right? And he's, he's got a little model of the city of Jerusalem, and he's got like, you know, little sticks that are Babylonians attacking, and he's got little rock piles of siege works coming in to attack it. Now listen, this is three years or so before the Babylonians even lay siege to Jerusalem, right? It's politically inexpedient. Nobody thinks this is going to happen. What people think is going to happen is, um, in a little while, Babylon is going to accept that Jerusalem is a vassal state and is going to submit to its authority, and then it'll let the exiles go home, right? And Jerusalem and Israel will thrive again under the rule of Babylon until some other bigger power comes in and knocks it out. And then we'll see. And then maybe God will set us free and bring his Messiah and everything will be great. People did not expect Jerusalem to fall. Their hope, their great hope in God was that Jerusalem would stand and God had already decreed Jerusalem was going to fall. There's no hope there, right? And so he says, now, now, so all the people, they think they're sensible of God and they're like worshiping God. They're like, oh God, you're going to bring us back to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's like, listen, you guys, this is not devotion. This is not devotion. Like, you're acting like it's devotion. It's not devotion. Devotion is to respond to what God says and to receive his redemption the way it's offered, not the way you presume it to be, right? And so here's what you need to understand is happening right now spiritually, and it's going to happen actually, is that God has decreed that Babylon would be, would come and lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy it. That's coming hadn't happened yet. He's predicting the future, and it happened exactly the way he said. And he lays a little seat trap, and then he has a metal pan. He holds between him and the city. Why does he do that? And then it says, but turn your face to the city. Why does he do that? To display the hiddenness of God as the Babylonians attack, but that it's still God behind it. So he holds out the metal plate, but he's watching it. That's like, that's, because a lot of us are really frustrated. I actually read an atheist's blog this morning. He's like, this this passage helped me lose my faith in God because God just speaks to everybody in the Bible. He's always speaking to people like they're face to face, and he doesn't speak to me like that, and I think that's stupid because my experience with God was nothing like the Bible. Okay, listen. God speaks to almost nobody face to face. Read the Bible. Right? 
There's literally thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds, maybe millions of people in the Bible. And you can count, you don't even think you have to take your shoes off to count how many people God speaks to face to face. It's almost no one. Right? Literally, Ezekiel's a prophet. That literally means God speaking abnormally to a particular person to speak and show to the people what he's not going to say face to face to everyone. That's why there are prophets. A prophet is literally somebody who hears from God and then tells everybody who God isn't speaking to in the same way. Right? Why? Because God has chosen to speak and show himself and simultaneously to be hidden. It's an intentional way he's responding to creation. And so he's looking at the city intently and holding a metal plate to symbolize his hiddenness. And yet he is the one bringing the Babylonian destruction. Does that make sense? Right? And now when he does it, he, he's bringing the punishment of God. And so people are like, oh God, with his punishments and his condemnations and his anger. He's always so angry. God is so angry. Okay. Maybe. You're a lot angrier than you think you are. What's the real proportion here? With God's anger and our punishment. Even in a place like this where God is literally pouring out in the most explicit terms his judgment. Right? One of the things that commentators have argued about for a long time is, what does the 390 days signify? What does it signify? You see, most commentators early on said— that it was the punishment to come. That God had decreed that he was going to punish the people for all the years that they turned from him, and he was going to punish them for 390 years. And there's still like, there's like fundamentalist churches today that take the 390 years plus the 40 years plus the blah, blah, blah with the thing divided by four plus, you know, times 2.644. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm going a little further than they go, but like they're trying to figure out like what this means for future prophecy, right? But and, and listen, I'm not saying that there—I mean, there are numbers in the Bible that I think are meant for future, for future prophecy. Don't get me wrong. There are—there's a lot of things in Ezekiel that point to future predictions that some have happened already and some have not yet happened. Okay, so like, I'm not putting down the idea of wanting to know what God said about the future. But the point of God speaking about the future to these people and to us is that we would know what to do today. Do you understand? However the world is going to end, God is speaking to us in a way that we would know what to do today. And so— People have—so, in fact, people are so committed to the idea that God was going to punish his people for 390 years that when the exile ended, they thought it ended like 200 years too soon. Right? So much so that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that they translated 200 years before Jesus was born, they act, the gloss actually changes the number from 390 to 190 because the Bible's wrong. So you got to fix it, Right? But here's the issue. What is God really trying to get across to stone-hearted people that he calls scorpions in chapter 2? What's he trying to get across to them? Right? It's not that he's going to punish them for 390 years. That's not the point. The point is they have punished him for 390 years. Don't you see? That's the point. The point, Ezekiel isn't standing in for you. Ezekiel is clearly in the place of God, right? He's He's looking at it. He's decreeing. He's the one bringing the attack on Jerusalem. He stands behind the Babylonians. He is the one who gazes upon them and is hidden. He is God. And he lays upon himself the sins of Israel for 390 years. Do you know what that means? That means he is counting from the reign of Solomon, at which point he married foreign women, created all kinds of idols, and introduced idolatry to Israel. 
massively, and they never recovered from it. That's why the exile had to come. And from that day until this had been 390 years. And every one of those years, his people had been spitting in his face, had been completely obstinate relative to his commands, had done whatever they wanted in their life, had used his name when it was convenient and threw it away when it wasn't, had listened to some of his commands when it suited them and got them ahead and threw them to the wayside when they got in their way. They were stubborn and they were obstinate. They were, they were like scorpions with a view from the ground about this high and just angry and ready to kill you all the time. And God suffered. He was punished with their idolatry and their violence and their oppression and their unfaithfulness for 390 years. He had been punished. He had suffered. He had waited. He had held himself back in kindness. He had gotten spit in the face day in and day out for 18 generations of kings. And he had been kind and waited and pleaded and offered and taught and helped and sent and shown and spoken and acted and done miracles on their behalf. And what he got for it was them burning their children alive in the battle in the Valley of Hinnom, them making peace trees with idolatrous nations that led their children's hearts away into idolatry. That's what he got for it. And almost as bad as this is the fact that, like, how long was the honeymoon period? How long did the glory of God come into the temple? How long did that last before the idolatry and the adultery began? Right? And the answer is, it's the same reign. Solomon builds the temple. It's in the reign of Solomon that the glory of God, that glory that we see in chapter 1, comes into the temple. He inhabits among his people in this temple on the mountain of Jerusalem and makes it the holy city. And in the same reign, the same Solomon introduces the high places and the asher poles and the idols and the idols and the idols. And, the, and it all begins. There is no—it's like, it's like, like a wife committing adultery the night of her wedding. There's no honeymoon period. There's just 390 years of profanity. Understand? Is, is God the hard one? Is he the mean one? Is he the one who overestimates your sin and your failures and your wickedness and your hard-headedness and your obstinacy, right? And he underestimates his failings? Is that what he's like? You see, the, 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 the heart of recalcitrant unbelief is not one that misunderstands the dynamic. Everybody understands that if there's a God, there's some dynamic between us, and it should be a moral one, and, and like we should be good, and he should be good, or whatever. Where we miss it is in the disorderedness of our own sense of proportion in our hearts because of sin, we start defining what the proportion must be between how much God has suffered and how much we have suffered. How angry we should be at him and how angry he should be at us, and so on. And what it turns out is, is that we are, comp we are so far off the mark in terms of the proportion of our offense toward God as a human race and as individual people relative to what we could actually put at his feet, which is actually nothing, that we're completely oblivious and totally lost relative to what God is actually doing. And you see, it's not until that the top of that obstinacy gets blown off that we actually can get anywhere. Let me just say the second thing quickly. Um, the second is stubbornness versus kindness, right? Um, 
In the second part of the chapter, he says, I want you to eat eight ounces of food a day with two-thirds of a quart of water. I want you to make it out of these grains. I want you to eat this bread cooked over cow dung, right? Think about this. Uh, A little while ago, it was like, it was kind of a cool thing in Christian circles to do the Daniel fast with Ezekiel bread. Anybody remember this? Daniel fast and Ezekiel bread? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, God put these special nutritional secrets in the Old Testament, and like, if you fast, and you're like, we're going to only eat vegetables like Daniel, and then we're going to make the Ezekiel bread, because in Ezekiel 4-9, there's a special recipe that God gives. It's like a whole protein and a superfood, and if we eat this stuff, we're going to lose weight, and God's going to bless us. It's going to be fantastic, right? Now listen, even though that's completely wrong, in the greatest possible terms, okay, God is pleased with people who did that out of any kind of devotion to Him, and not just to like aggrandize themselves. Do you understand? If people did it because they, they really believed God was giving them a secret by which they could, like, move towards him in some way, and they made some silly bread because of it, God blessed them, and God loves them, and God—I mean, but listen, that's not what the Bible is teaching, right? The Jewish dietary laws are not vegetarian. The reason why Daniel couldn't eat the meat that was offered to him is because it was unclean meat that had been offered to idols. So he forewent it and ate only vegetables, which is not a good diet. That's the whole point. God's blessing was he ate a bad diet— and his health was better than all the other people who were eating the unclean meat. And that was a miracle because he had trusted in God, right? Same thing with Ezekiel. Okay, listen. This, this is a nice white lady who wrote a really nice little, like, I'm a mommy staying at home, but I'm a literary person with a college degree, so I'm going to write a little food blog, right? And she wrote a, it's a nice recipe, and like, you should go find it and make it. And I'm sure she's a wonderful person. But listen, this, this lady's putting honey and salt in her bread. That is not what God said. Okay, like God, God didn't build. You know what you should do? You know what's going to happen in Jerusalem when everybody's starving to death? They're going to put honey in their bread. It's going to be awesome. Listen, and look how much you put in. It's a cup. It's a cup of honey. For God's sakes. What doesn't taste good? With, I would eat the cow dung with a cup of honey. Right? That was a good one, right? <laughs> you can, and like when this was hot, like you could go to stores, you could buy cinnamon raisin Ezekiel bread. Can you imagine Ezekiel laying on the side looking at his iPhone being like, cinnamon raisin Ezekiel bread? This is crazy. <laughs> Defeat the whole purpose. You're missing the point, people. Right? There's this, um, there was this rabbi in the third century and, or a biblical commentator, and he, he was like, Huh, I wonder how bad this is. And he like made the Ezekiel bread, okay? And he tried to feed it to a dog. See if, see if the dog would eat it. That's a pretty good thing, right? Like, how, how bad is this, right? And the answer is no. <laughs> right? And I'm not talking about like, you know, one of your little pooches that eats only raw meat that you got from Whole Foods and whatever. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about that dog. I'm talking about like a scrappy little street dog. He's like, hey, scrappy street dog. It almost died last night. Come here. Got some bread for you. And he runs over. And he's like, hey, you want to eat this? And he's like, Where's the honey? <laughs> right? No, listen. What you, gotta, what you need to realize is this, okay? I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Like, I want you to open up your emotional imagination. Listen to this. God called—remember when Ezekiel in chapter 1, he was so angry and distraught after seeing the glory of God and hearing his calling? He was so angry. Why was he angry? Right? Maybe, maybe he was starting to realize what it was going to cost him to speak for God. Maybe he was beginning to realize that he was going to be treated the way God is treated by humanity. Maybe he was beginning to realize how, how much pain he was going to suffer 
to play the part of God. So many of us think that if, if we are prophets, oh, God made me a prophet. I get to speak for God. I tell people how it was. I tell, no, no, it turns out you get to lay on your side for 390 days and eat food that a dog wouldn't eat, cooked over excrement, and then later on, your wife dies and you don't get to mourn. Like, this is what it's like to be God. This is what it's like to be God and to love people. No, think about it. Right? Most of us won't even apologize to our kids about something. And this guy literally laid out, listen, I lay on my side for about 25 minutes and my shoulder hurts. Right? Everybody over 40 is like, amen. <laughs> this guy's laying on his side for more than a year eating a starvation diet. Okay? The reason why there's all these like whole foods and grains in it is because he's, he's showing to the people of Israel that in the time of their siege, food would be so scarce, they wouldn't be able to find enough of any one grain to bake a loaf of bread. And because, so they'd have to like get little scraps of millet, little scraps of lentils, and little scraps of barley, and like grind it all together, and try to make a loaf of bread to survive and not starve to death. And it was going to taste disgusting. Think about this. He did it three years before any of this happened. Why did he do it three years before any of it happened? Right? And the answer is this. He made Ezekiel in the place of God suffer all of the privations and more of the actual siege to send a message to the people so that they wouldn't have to suffer it, so that they would give up. So that when Babylon showed up, they would know that God had decreed the city would fall, that they were going into exile. Like it says in other places in Scripture. And they would just go out to Babylon and say, we give up. God has told us that there's no sense in trying to kill ourselves and starving death or trying to get away. You're going to kill us. We know it. We give up. We shouldn't have rebelled. You were right. And And God said, if you do that, you will not be punished. You'll go into exile, but they won't kill you. Right? All of this was to save the people who had gutted him for 390 years, two years of suffering. He wanted to save them from those two years of suffering. He wanted them to get off easy. He wanted them to repent and, and, and escape it. They had to receive a certain punishment. There was going to be a 40-year exile, right, which is a round number. It ends up being 70 years, but I can't do all the math right now, right? But it stands for a generation, right? 40 years in the desert, 40 years, a generation in the exile. He was going to send them into exile. He was going to reset the people of God. He was going to do that. Nothing could stop that now. But they didn't have to starve to death. They didn't have to die. They didn't have to be cut to pieces in the desert trying to flee. They weren't going to get away. So he said, look, I'm going to tell a man to lay on his side for more than a year and eat a starvation diet. And you're going to watch his body waste away. You're going to see his cheeks get hollow. You're going to see some of his teeth fall out. You're going to see him like almost die. And he's going to say, look, this is you. This is you if you don't repent, if you turn to God, if you don't accept the offer of grace he's giving you. This is you. Now see it in me and escape it. Turn to him, believe, and he'll, he will send you. He's going to send you in exile. You're going to have to go through the painful process of change and discipline. But listen, it doesn't have to be like this. Oh no. The moment you turn to him, the moment you turn to him, he changes the difficulty of it. He adjusts what's really happening. He, he seeks to pour out grace even in the punishment so that you can even thrive, even in exile you can thrive, as the Jews did who were in exile. I, it's, it, it just, it... The sacrifice of God for us, right? I mean, think about this. Like, I, I say this all the time. The Bible actually fairly rarely makes philosophical points. It's almost always making psychological points. What, like, what do you do to an incredibly obstinate person? What do you do to people with hearts of scorpions who are, whose hearts are made of stone, right? 
Right? You, don't, you don't say, hey, you know, I think you're wrong, guys. Now, you don't write a, like a clearly reasoned little treatise. None of that works. You've already, he's already done that for years and generations. No, he, he, he does some kind of like antics that are so ridiculous by their very nature that they're so far out of proportion to what anybody could possibly imagine that you might possibly get the attention of somebody who has no sensibility of proportion. So that, think about this. Every, like they're walking by, right? It's like it's day 264 and Ezekiel is trying to shove down this dry piece of crappy bread. And you look at him, he's like, Ezekiel, you're still there? He's like, yeah, it's only been 260 days representing 260 years. You and I and all of our forefathers hated God for all his love for us and all his kindness. Yeah, and I still have like another 100 days to go because of what we're really like. Right? You, see, you see, all of this insanity is an attempt to break the brokenness of our proportionality so that we can see the truth. God is not obsessively mean. He's not evil. He's not even really hard. If we understand Scripture according to its real context and understand what God is really saying, if we were to fault God for something, it would have to be that he was a ridiculous pushover, that he was far too kind and indulged just far too much, and that his punishments were not nearly strict enough, and that he apparently didn't take himself seriously at all. That's what we should criticize him for. But instead what God says is, what you mistake for that is kindness. What you mistake for that is graciousness. What you mistake for that is love. And I've tried to display to you my willingness to sacrifice. Not just pain, but humiliation. And God has always been doing this, right? In the Torah, at the very beginning, he tried to show the proportionality of sin. You commit a sin, and a lamb has to die. And you have to watch it bleed to death. Why? Because we don't believe that our sins are important. We just think God's overreacting to them. He's like, no, no, no. You watch that. You bring that lamb, and you watch it die. That is the cost of your wickedness. And people blew that off. And so he sent a prophet to them right before their exile, who laid on his side for a year, the next passage, he has to take a sword and cut off all his hair. And then he's got to destroy it all to show God destroying his people. Now think about this. Why his hair? Because God wanted Ezekiel to cut something off his very body, his own body, and destroy it. Because that's what we're like to him. We're like his own body. Part of his very self, his own love self. Jesus says, nobody hates his own body. Right? Ephesians said, nobody hates your own body, but they love and care for it and build it up. And God says, cut off your, to show what I'm going to do with people, cut off your own hair and destroy it. To show the people I will destroy them, but it's like cutting off a part of me when I do it. Right? And then, like, you see where this is all going, right? You see that this all points to the suffering, sacrifice, and humiliation of the true and greater Ezekiel. That there is one who came more perfectly, more completely, more specifically, to complete all of these messages for all time and through all time, for all people in all of our shared humanity, with all of our hard hearts and scorpion temperaments, all of our obstinacy and hatred towards God, to come and to give the most outlandish gesture, God become man so we could abuse him. Think of it. God become man so we could abuse him. So he could speak and we could not listen. So he could heal and we could just want more. 
so we could feed, he could feed us, we'd say, he'd say, we'd say, that's not enough, so that he would tell us what's wrong with us, so we would willfully misunderstand him, and that ultimately we would deprive him of justice, humiliate him as much as possible, and then murder him. There's not a lot that I know of that could make lying on your side for 390 days and eat disgusting food that a dog will eat cooked over excrement worse. But Ezekiel, who was the son of man and stood in for God the Father to show the people how they could be saved in the most terrible of times, to set their proportion right again, is exactly what Jesus has done. All of his teachings, all of his actions, every miracle, everything he shows to, does to show he's acting in good faith, every sacrifice that he makes to shock us out of our stupidity and our obstinacy, his very death itself, and even the invitation within the accusation of his resurrection and his offer of faith and what he will do, that he'll immediately forgive, save, develop, change, help, restore. You see, what's wrong with us is, is it's not necessarily our view of the dynamics of reality. The reason we don't believe in God in the first place, the reason why we don't enjoy him in the second, the reason why we won't trust him in the present, the reason why we won't be filled with faith, hope, and love by opening ourselves to keep in step with the Spirit at all moments and wanting our hearts and minds to be transformed into the mind of Christ is because we don't trust him, because we fault him, because of our sense of proportion is totally wrong. Look to the man who laid on his side and starved for 390 days to show you the truth of our abuse of God and his leniency and kindness in it. And let that son of man point to the true and greater son of man who embraced the cross and scorned the shame because it might be an action beautiful enough, ridiculous enough, crazy enough to shake us from our stone hearts and our scorpion dispositions to see the beauty of the kind God and to rush to him for salvation, redemption, and restoration. <sighs> oh, God, I wish that there was, I wish we could just have seen him. I wish we all could have walked by him. I wish he was just outside the church. We could just watch him waste away. We could see him day after day. I pray that you'd make us sensible of what cost, what abuse you face and suffer as the God who is the sovereign Lord who could evaporate us in a millisecond, yet you are full of kindness, so long-suffering, and the hardness that it takes not to see that when you offer such gestures as a loss of proportion that, that only hell can explain. God, we pray that a change in our sense of proportion would make us sensible of the truth, and that through it you would redeem us and humble us unto joy and salvation in Jesus' name.